Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Judge not that you be not judged. Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. It's likely that you recognize most, if not all, of those statements. But what you may not realize is that every single one of them comes from chapters 5, 6, and 7 in the Gospel of Matthew, or what has become known to us today as the Sermon on the Mount. A, a, a rich, full, practical message and teaching from Jesus that we are beginning today. You can open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. We are starting Matthew chapter 5. And the Sermon on the Mount, this, this, this is considered by many the greatest sermon ever preached. And it is a great sermon. The Sermon on the Mount is echoed in almost every single New Testament book. Uh, it's just c continually uh, referenced and alluded to from the later New Testament authors. And then once you get past the New Testament, the Sermon on the Mount is quoted more than any other section of Scripture in the first 400 years of Christianity. When you go back and look at the early writings of Christianity, you're going to find the Sermon on the Mount everywhere. It, it, it was the uh, focus text for the early church in terms of what does it mean to follow Christ, to live as a Christian. Commentary upon commentary has been written on the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I have commentaries when I preach through books. I have a commentary or two for each series that we do. But for the Sermon on the Mount, there are commentaries just on this sermon, as thick as the commentaries on Matthew. And there's more of them, probably. There, there's been so much written on the Sermon on the Mount, so much material, such a, such a rich set of teachings that Jesus gives to us. Yet at the same time, when there's been much written on a subject, what's guaranteed to happen is there's going to be much confusion on that subject. There's bound to be disagreement the more that is written. And that's the case with the Sermon on the Mount. There, there are a number of interpretations of the sermon, a number of ways that people understand it. And so uh, my plan this week was to really jump into the first few verses of the sermon, but I, I, the more I studied, the more I felt like we need to get our bearings. If we're going to be understanding this sermon, if we're going to move forward with, with the same mind and same heart as we, as we preach through these messages, that we need to have the same interpretive grid. And so this morning, what we're doing is it's really a sermon about a sermon. Right? We're gonna be, we're gonna be, I'm going to be preaching on the sermon itself as a whole and, and what it, is it about. Um, wh what do we need to know about the Sermon on the Mount so that we can really understand it and apply it to our lives? So the text this morning, I'm going to read from chapter 5, verse 1 through verse 20. We're not going to go through that whole text, but I'm going to read it just so we get a good feel for the Sermon on the Mount as we begin. But again, then we're going to look at a few questions to help us understand this sermon. And, and I pray as we do that, that we will be unified in understanding that this sermon is for us, the church, that, that these teachings are meant to be understood and applied by the power of the Spirit and in the freedom of grace. 
That is the goal this morning, is that we would come to that point together as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. So let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 20 of the Gospel of Matthew. 5, 1 through 20. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's taste. How shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the way the Sermon on the Mount begins. And again, we want to ask four questions this morning, four preliminary questions that are going to help us understand how to read this sermon, how to apply this sermon to our lives. And so again, it's a sermon about a sermon. That sounds, I know that sounds exciting, but here we go. What is the sermon about? Question one, what is this sermon really about? Every good sermon has a subject. You don't don't just want someone to ramble about nonsense for 40 minutes or however long it is. You, you, you want to know what, what is the preacher talking about? Have you ever wondered that? Like, what is, what is he talking about right now? I hope you've not wondered that too much with me, but, but what, what is the sermon about? Well, the subject of the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is pretty straightforward. It is about our conduct. The Sermon on the Mount is about ethics. It's about behavior. It's about what we do. It's about the way we live our lives. The sermon addresses anger, lust, Divorce, oath-keeping, retaliation, giving, prayer, fasting, money, worry, judging, helping, loving. The sermon gives us instructions for how to live. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is about. But the thing is, when you actually read through the sermon, these instructions, they can seem impossible to keep. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus seems to lay out an impossibly high standard of righteousness. It would kind of be like if if I came to you and brought you a basketball, and I said, here, here's the free throw line. I want you to jump from here and dunk this basketball. Now, who of you can do that? 
I can't do that. You know who can do that? Michael Jordan can do that. Michael Jordan has done it. It's amazing, but we can't do that. that that's impossible for us, but that's kind of what it feels like reading the Sermon on the Mount. It's like you are asking me to do something that is impossible. And, and, and so just here's, here's an example of this. In verses 21 and 22, Jesus talks about the command not to murder. Now, I can keep that command. I have so far in my life not murdered anybody. But then Jesus says this, whoever is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. And I hear that command and I think to myself, well, that's impossible. I get angry every day. And yet this is the kind of stuff we find in the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's, it's about how we live, but it's this, it's this seemingly impossible requirement, the seemingly impossible standard for how to live. And this leads to the next question. Okay, what is the sermon about? It's about how we live, but again, this, 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 this standard that seems unattainable. Next question, who is the sermon for? Every sermon has an audience, so who was Jesus preaching to? And this is where the confusion in the interpretation of the sermon really kicks in. You know, no one disagrees that the sermon is about how we live, it's about a, a standard of righteousness, but, but where the confusion kicks in is who would, be, who would be receiving these instructions? Who are these instructions for? Now, one popular answer to that question is that the Sermon on the Mount is for unbelievers. The Sermon on the Mount is, in essence, an evangelistic tool. It's for those who don't yet know Jesus. And here's how it works. Uh, again, it, as, as an unbeliever, you hear that command, do not murder, you say, check. Not done that. But then you hear the command, do not be angry, and you immediately say, if you're honest with yourself, well, I'm guilty there. I've, I, I have been angry. And over and over again, that, that kind of effect takes place till uh, the, the point would come where you realize that, that you are guilty. You realize that you are a lawbreaker. You realize you need forgiveness, and it drives you to Christ. Now, if you're asking me, can the Sermon on the Mount be used this way? Can the Lord use the Sermon on the Mount this way? Definitely. Yes, right? How, how many of you would actually say that God has used the Sermon on the Mount in that way in your life? Showed you that you're not righteous. Shown you that, you that you don't meet the standard and driven you from there to the grace of the gospel. How many of you would say that that's happened to you reading the Sermon on the Mount? I, I would say that, right? So yes, this is something that the Lord does with the sermon. He can definitely use the standard of righteousness to reveal to unbelievers their need for forgiveness. And maybe even this morning, someone's here who's, you, you don't know Christ, and you're, you're not a believer, and you see, even what we're talking about here, just hearing that, and it's not just murder, it's anger, and you realize, I am guilty. Well, then, then yes, let the Sermon on the Mount drive you to see there is forgiveness in Christ that, that you need, that we cannot be good enough. But, but, with all that said, can Jesus use the sermon this way is different than was this his primary purpose in the sermon? Was Jesus preaching to unbelievers? Who was his audience? And the answer to that is no, he was not preaching to unbelievers. You know, he says in the sermon, we read it, you are the light of the world. Now, would that make sense if he's talking to unbelievers? Who's the world? The world is unbelievers, right? The world is the, the lost world. You are the light of the lost world. He's, he's speaking to those who know him. He's speaking to those who are following him. He's speaking to his disciples. And we actually see this in verse 1. Matthew makes it explicit. He doesn't want us to miss it. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And so, yes, the crowds heard the Sermon on the Mount. 
at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that we see that the crowds marveled at the teaching. They, they were hearing what Jesus said, but who was Jesus speaking to? Look at verse 2. He opened his mouth and he taught them. The disciples came to him and he taught them. This is directed to the disciples. This is a sermon that he is teaching to those who have left everything behind to follow him like we saw last week. This is, this is a sermon of those who have committed themselves to, to live with him and learn from him and be like him, those who have, who have put their trust in him as their savior. So what that means then for us is that this is a sermon for us. This is a sermon for believers. This is a sermon for the church. The teachings in this are, are applied to us. It's like Jesus is giving us the basketball and saying, dunk from the free throw line. He's, he's doing that in this sermon. He is calling us to this impossible standard of righteousness. Well, of course, that, that leaves us with attention. It's like, well, we can't, Jesus. What, what do you mean? So how, how, how are we supposed to understand this? So, so he's speaking this truly to those who follow him, but it seems like this impossible standard of righteousness, what are we supposed to do with that? Well, this brings us to the third question. Where was the sermon preached? Where was this sermon preached? Now, stay with me here, because it's, it's going to be relevant. Sometimes the setting of a speech doesn't mean anything. Sometimes the setting of a speech, or a sermon in this case, really matters. You think about uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. He, he, he spoke that from the capital of the United States. That was for a reason, right? He's giving his dream, his, his, his vision for a better America. And so he preached it in the capital. Well, I believe that the Sermon on the Mount is, is like this, that Jesus went up on the mountain for a reason. Every single one of you should know the answer to the question, where was the sermon preached? Just the sermon on the mount, right? It's, it was preached on a mountain. That, that's where it was. And, and, and Matthew makes a point to tell us this. But, but notice he says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. He went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And, and, and it seems small, but that word, the, the, is very significant. For instance, just a few a chapter earlier, when Jesus was tempted by Satan, uh, Matthew said the devil took him to a very high mountain. He didn't say the mountain, he said a mountain. And that's, that's generally how Matthew talks about mountains in this gospel. He says he went to a mountain. But here he says he went to the mountain, and, and he's making a subtle illusion, but a significant point. Now you might think I'm making a mountain out of a mountain, but we'll see what I, what I mean here. I really thought about if I should say that or not. I couldn't help myself, though. I want to state the conclusion first, and then, and then we'll see how this connects. Matthew wants us to make a connection between Mount Sinai and this mountain. Matthew wants us to make a connection between the Exodus and what's happening in the gospel. Matthew wants us to make a connection between Moses and Jesus as the sermon begins. Again, you might be thinking, how do you get that from verse 1, from the words, the mountain? And the answer is, I don't get it from just verse 1. I get it from the whole gospel of Matthew weaving together these themes. We've already seen this some. Let's just remember some things we've seen in this series so far. Remember back to the genealogy. And, and in the genealogy, we saw that Jesus is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And he's tracing the descendants. But then he does something strange for a genealogy. He stops tracing the descendants. And all of a sudden, he says that, that this generation went to exile. And then he never records the return from exile. 
Except he, then he says Jesus was born. And, and it's Matthew's way of saying that Jesus is the one who brings his people back from exile, which is the second exodus, which is the, the second deliverance that God promised in the Old Testament. He's saying that Jesus does that. Jesus is pictured from the very beginning as, as this Moses figure who brings his people back from slavery, back from exile to the promised land. Then we saw in the birth narrative how, how Matthew told us that uh, Herod was seeking to kill all the babies in Bethlehem in order to try to kill Jesus, but Jesus' life was spared. And this, this has so much connection with the story of Moses, right? Where, where Pharaoh was killing all of the Israelite children, but Moses was spared. God, God protected his deliverer. And, and so Matthew's making these connections. A, a big picture connection in this book that's hard to see when just going paragraph by paragraph, but the structure of the book, Matthew has included five different teaching sections of Jesus in this book. Five different distinct sections where Jesus teaches his disciples. And the reason he does that is because of the Moses connection again, that, that Moses is the one who wrote the five books of the Torah. And it's another way that he's saying Jesus is another Moses, a greater Moses. And here in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, he went up the mountain, which is the very exact same wording used in Exodus 19, after the Red Sea, when Moses had delivered Israel out of Egypt, and then he went up the mountain, same exact words. And what did Moses do? He received the law, and he gave the law. And what is Jesus doing in the Sword of the Mount? He, he is giving the authoritative interpretation of that law to his people. And so, in these subtle, but, but as you put them together, these clear ways, Matthew's telling us Jesus is the greater Moses who delivers us from slavery to sin. He establishes his new covenant with us through his own death on the cross. And here's the thing. If, if, so, again, Moses delivered Israel from slavery to Egypt to Mount Sinai. They received the law. They, they received the old covenant. But that old covenant was, was not working, was it? They, they continued to sin, they continued to disobey, and God promised a new covenant. He said a better covenant is coming, and here's what he said about this new covenant. He said this new covenant, in this new covenant, everyone of you will know me. And in this new covenant, I will put my law on your hearts, not on stone, but on your hearts. And in this new covenant, I will put my spirit in you. The, the, these new covenant blessings come to us in Jesus. And, and here's why this matters so much for understanding the Sermon on the Mount. Because it means that the seemingly impossible commands are just that. They're seemingly impossible. They're not actually impossible for us anymore. If Jesus is the greater Moses, and he is, then that means we have been set free from the power of sin. It means that we have God's law written on our hearts. It means we have the Holy Spirit living in us, which means that when we read these instructions, which seem impossibly high, we realize, but they're not because of God's transforming work in my life. Again, I know it's a silly illustration, but just think about it. I didn't just, if I didn't just say, here, dunk this basketball, but I said, oh, and I'm also going to infuse you with the DNA of Michael Jordan. It's like, that changes everything, right? Now you can do it. That's what's happened to us in the new covenant through Jesus. He's set us free from the power of sin, put his law in our hearts, given us his spirit. So we hear these instructions and by the spirit, through faith, because of what he's done inside of us, making us new creations, we can obey. We can follow. Listen to what one commentator says about all of this. He says, the righteousness described 
in the Sermon on the Mount is an absolute impossibility for those who remain captive to Satan and are enslaved to sin. It's an absolute impossibility if you've not been transformed by Jesus, if you've not been saved by your Redeemer. But then he says, but Jesus' followers have been liberated from this slavery. The great Redeemer has cried, let my people go. He has removed their shackles, killed their old harsh taskmaster, buried his body in the sand, crushed the power of Pharaoh with one plague after another, led them to freedom across the parted sea. The Sermon on the Mount describes the righteousness that will be exhibited by those who've experienced this emancipation from slavery to sin. That's, that's what we're looking at. Is this, is, this is describing the kind of righteousness that will be evidenced by those who have been transformed by Jesus. The, the Sermon on the Mount is, is not a righteousness that we can't keep. It is a righteousness that we keep by the power of the Spirit through the work of Christ in a way that glorifies Him. We can obey the Sermon on the Mount through the saving work of Christ. And I, I just want, as an application here, to, to say that often I think we, we don't focus enough as believers on the call to obey. We don't focus enough on the fact that Jesus gives us commands, and the commands aren't just meant to show us that we need the gospel. The commands are meant to, to, to be evidence that we have received the gospel. The commands are meant to, to be followed in the power of the work of the gospel in our hearts to show that the gospel really is the power of God to save us from sin. And so when we hear these commands, we're going to be in the Sermon on the Mount for some time. When we hear these instructions, we, we, we hear them as those who have been redeemed and have the Spirit and have been transformed. And so we will seek to obey them to glorify our Redeemer, Jesus Christ. At the same time, we don't always obey, do we? Even with all this said, that doesn't mean that we become perfect in our obedience. We still fail, we still sin, we still disobey. And this leads to the fourth question. And this question is, what is the sermon's structure? And again, there's a point to this. What is the sermon's structure? Every good sermon has a structure, an organization of ideas, a logic. It's not just random thoughts thrown together in a blender. What is the structure of this sermon? Well, again, we've seen the body of the sermon. The, 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 the body of the sermon has to do with our conduct and the way we live our lives. It, 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 it calls us to a certain standard of righteousness. The conclusion of the sermon at the end of the sermon presses home the need to apply that. It, Jesus uses these, these metaphors of two ways over and over again to say, are you going to respond to this? Are you going to apply it to your life? Are you going to do what I've said? But the introduction, unlike the body, unlike the conclusion, it does not have to do with our conduct. The introduction to the sermon does not begin with instructions. The sermon does not begin with commands. The sermon begins with blessing. The sermon begins with blessing. The opening lines of the sermon are referred to as the Beatitudes. We read them earlier, and this is just a way of, of saying the Beatitudes just means pronouncements of God's blessing. Pronouncements of God's blessing. The sermon begins by declaring that God is the God who is blessing his people before moving on to the instructions. And, and again, we should notice the contrast here between the old covenant law and this new covenant instruction. In the old covenant, God gives the commandments. And then he says, if you do them, you will be blessed. If you don't do them, you will be cursed. That's Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai comes and says, here are God's instructions. Here are God's commandments. 
If you do them, you will be blessed. You'll, you will have all the promises of God, but if you don't do them, you will be cursed, and all of this will be taken away from you. You know, the people responded to that and said, we will do them. We will do them. Over and over again, we hear them saying that, and yet over and over again, we see them not doing them, failing to obey, turning to idols, and ultimately refusing to repent until they did experience the judgment of God. Now Jesus comes, and he is the one who brings his people back from exile, and in the new covenant, Jesus comes and he turns that upside down. He says, you are blessed, now do the commandments. And what's happening is that this is the logic of grace. This is the logic of the gospel. We see it throughout the New Testament. Think about the book of Romans. Romans in the first 11 chapters, it's just, here is what God has done in Christ for your salvation. And then chapter 12, therefore, in light of his mercy, because of what he's done, live this way. Ephesians, we saw this last year, it starts with, Blessed be God who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. For three chapters, he just talks about the blessings of God in the gospel. And then chapter 4, therefore, walk this way. This is the logic of grace. This is the logic of the gospel. And Jesus introduces it right here in the Sermon on the Mount. He begins with blessing. God blesses us by his grace and then calls us to respond in obedience. Now how does this happen? How, how, how does this, this upside-downness happen from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant? Does Jesus just discard the Old Covenant? Does he just say, that didn't work, let's try something new? No. Jesus doesn't discard it. He even said that. We read it earlier. He didn't come to abolish the Law and Prophets. He came, what, to fulfill them. This, this, this reversal happens by Jesus coming and fulfilling the Old Covenant and then transforming it for us into something better. He fulfills the Old Covenant by earning the blessing of righteousness. He, Jesus keeps the law. Jesus obeys. Jesus never sins. Jesus keeps the law and he earns the blessing in himself. He's the only one who's ever earned the blessing of the Old Covenant. But then he also fulfills the Old Covenant by receiving the curse. He, he earns the blessing, but then he receives the curse. He's the one who's cursed on a tree. He's the one who dies for unrighteousness, dies for disobedience, even though he never sinned. And he's doing that for us. He earns the blessing and he receives the curse so that we could receive the blessing and not be cursed. This is, this is the foundation of grace. Grace is free, but it comes at the cost of Jesus living a perfect life and then dying a sacrificial death for our sins. And here's what all this means in terms of the Sermon on the Mount. It means that God blesses us not for what we have done, but because of what Christ has done. His saving blessings come to us by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we hear his commands and we hear his instructions, we seek to obey them as those who are under grace and not under law. In other words, this is not a tryout. This is, this is not Jesus saying, here, try it. I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to give you I'm put my law in your heart. And, and now you do your best. And let's see if you do good, good enough. No, no. He has already done it all. We are accepted by the Father in him. We are already blessed. And so when we fail to obey, which we will, we don't despair. We repent. We pray, Father, forgive us our sins in the assurance that Christ has died for our sins. 
And then we continue. And then we, just, we, we get back up and we continue to learn from Christ and become like Christ more and more each day. But it's all in the context of grace. It's all in the context that God has already blessed us. And no one can remove that from us because Jesus earned the blessing and Jesus received the curse for us. And so we live in grace, the way that Paul says in Romans, this grace in which we stand. We stand in it, and, and if we move over here, it's just going to move over us, right? It's just, it's just going to follow us wherever we go. We can't escape his grace once he has blessed us with it. And so we do obey, but we obey not to earn we obey not, not to receive, but we obey because we have received. We obey because we have been accepted. We don't, we don't work for blessing. We work from blessing. God has blessed us, and therefore we obey. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus calls his disciples to a truly righteous way of life, but he doesn't call us to achieve it on our own. He died for our sins, and he empowers our obedience as we turn to him in faith. How should we respond to this? As, as we venture into the Sermon on the Mount for the next few months, how should we respond to these realities? Look again at verse 1 with me. It says, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. His disciples came to him. You know, the crowds were there. The crowds heard the Sermon on the Mount, but, but, but look, the disciples came to Jesus. They came to him. They, they, they listened as those who had left everything behind to follow him. They drew near to him. They, they came to, into his presence to learn from him and to let him do his transforming work in them. And I think that, that we see something here that, that we can either hear the Sermon on the Mount like the crowds did, just from a distance, listening in, saying, wow, that's, that's amazing. That's, that's different. That's that's helpful. Or we can come to Jesus himself. We can bring ourselves to him, bring our hearts to him, come into his presence and say, Lord, you are my Lord. I need you. You are my rescuer. You are the one who will transform me. You are the one who will save me. And I bring my whole self to you right now in humble submission to your word. And I'm hungry. And teach me, Lord. Teach me and change me. A, a posture of humility before the Lord. A posture of desiring the Lord. A posture of, of wanting to be with Jesus as we hear these instructions. This, this is the posture we need to have as a church as we approach these chapters. Every week when we come here, we come to Jesus to hear his instructions, to let him do his transforming work in our hearts so that we may glorify him. So let's not be like the crowds, just hearing what he says from a distance, thinking about it, walking away. Let's do what the disciples did. Let's come to Jesus, to the one who lived a sinless life and died a sacrificial death for our sins and rose again. I want to call you to come to the one who forgives your sins. Come to the one who writes his law on your hearts. Come to the one who puts his spirit in us. Come to the greater Moses. Come to the Redeemer who sets you free from your sin. Come to the one who took the curse for you and who blesses you with salvation. This morning, in your heart, by faith, come to him. Bring yourself to him. Call out to him. Put your confidence in him. Rest in him and learn from him and follow him.